This is the Athletics of Business Podcast, Episode 16. Welcome to the Athletics of Business, a podcast about how the traits and behaviors of elite athletes and remarkable business leaders frequently intersect. The real stories and hard lessons to help you level up your leadership and performance. Now your host, Ed Molitor. Welcome to the Athletics of Business Podcast. I'm Ed Molitor, CEO of the Molitor Group and your host. Today's special guest is Rich Sheridan, CEO of Menlo Innovations. Rich had an all-consuming thought during a difficult mid-career in the chaotic technology industry. Things can be better, much better. He had to find a way. His search led him to books, authors, and history, including recalling childhood visits to Greenfield Village every summer. The excitement of the Edison Menlo Park, New Jersey lab served as his siren call to create a workplace filled with camaraderie, human energy, creativity, and productivity. Ultimately, Rich and his co-founder, James Goble, invented their own company in 2001 to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology by returning joy to one of the most unique endeavors mankind has ever undertaken, the invention of software. Their unique approach to custom software creation is so interesting that almost 4,000 people a year travel from around the world just to see how they do it. In 2013, Rich and his publisher, Penguin Random House, took a chance that a business book with the words joy and love on the cover might have impact. His best-selling book, Joy, Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love, now has Rich traveling the world speaking about joy, creativity, and human energy in the workplace. His second book, Chief Joy Officer, is due out December 4th. Rich, thank you so much for inviting me into this fabulous environment here at Menlo Innovations. And I really, I'm humbled to be here and I really appreciate you carving out some time uh, to share uh, all the things that we're going to talk about today. Well, thanks for making the drive, Ed. It's fun to do these in person rather than over the internet. Well, it absolutely is. And the, the tour that you gave me today of this unique facility, and we'll get into it, um, it, 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 you talk about inspiring you to do something different with your office. Uh, the, the environment and the setup that you have here is is quite dynamic. But um, I'm a big fan. I'm a huge fan. Um, obviously, um, we were introduced several months ago. And, and in, in reading uh, everything I could and reading the book Joy, Inc., your story is very fascinating to me. And that might be an understatement. Can you can you just take us back as we sit here? You're, you're 17 years old now here at Menlo Innovations. Have quite the journey. Um, could you start us from the very beginning with the uh, Fantasy Baseball League? You bet. Uh, so I got a great start in the software industry. Uh, I didn't even know what computers were. And in ninth grade, I was 13 years old. And our high school up in Macomb County, just north of Detroit, offered computer programming as a course for high school freshmen. First time that it ever happened in uh, Macomb County schools. And I took the class. I didn't know what it was all about. I typed in a two-line program to begin uh, sort of the first day of class and typed the word run. And the computer came back in a roll of paper. That's the way they used to work in those days. Mm -hmm. And clacked out, hi, Rich. (laughs) Uh, And that's what I told it to do. So I thought, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. I can command a machine. It, it was a very heady moment, and uh, quite frankly, my life has never been the same since. By 10th grade, uh, I decided to type all the Major League Baseball players out of the baseball register into the computer so my friends and I could play baseball, pick our favorite teams, play them against each other uh, through the cold winter Michigan months. Now, and what year is this again? This is 1972. So, I, I have to ask, how long did that take you to type in all those names? Oh, my gosh. You know, I, it was, <laughs> I, I can even remember what I did was I, I created this little log, and I went through every page of the baseball register. Mm-hmm. But and then I hand-wrote all of the players' names, their average, whether they batted right wow. or left, what team they were on, what position they played. And then I took that handwritten copy and then started typing. And there were over 500 players at the time. Sure. So I'm sure it took me a couple of weeks to type well, you all took, those players what, remember in. The, the, was it the rotary baseball game or you'd slip the card and then you hit the spinner? And then you yes. Up, you yep. I mean, so you took that to a whole, whole different level. whole different level. And, and it was just 
it, it was a delight. I mean, the first time that I could sit down with my friends mm -hmm. uh, with a creation of my own thinking and start playing the game of baseball mm -hmm. on the computer was kind of mind-blowing. My teacher at the time uh, said, hey, there's this international programming contest. Why don't you enter your game into that? There's a gaming category. And I won. I won the gaming category. And uh, so by 1973, I'd won this international programming contest. I still couldn't drive a car at that point. And the, the place that was supplying us the compute power, uh, the director uh, came to visit our high school. And he said, I want to see the kid who won the contest. Right. And he sits down with me. His name was Tom Hartzig. And Tom said, would you like to come work for me? And I said, doing what? He says, programming. And I said, y you get paid for doing this? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He says, I'll pay you $3 an hour. And I'm like, Big money. it was. Yeah. I was making two yeah. bucks an hour as a dishwasher at Big Boy up yeah. to that point. Yeah. So, Programming uh, sounds like a lot more fun, too. And so uh, that launched a career. Wow. And I've never looked back since. Uh, eventually came up here to, got, uh, to Michigan, uh, got a couple of degrees in computer science and computer engineering, and launched a career uh, after graduating with a master's degree in 1982 and fell in love with Ann Arbor and been here ever since. I can understand that. Yeah, that's amazing. Did you ever imagine that this, as I'm pointing out to the floor here, that this was what it would culminate into? You know, oddly, yes. Uh, it was kind of a, a, a surreal moment for me. When I, was a, when I was at Michigan, when I was a student, uh, there's a place nearby here called Nichols Arcade, and I can remember one fall afternoon walking by there and thinking about, where do I want my career to go? What do I want it to be? Where do I want to work? What kind of environment do I want to work in? And I had this picture in my head about um, uh, a team filled with camaraderie and energy and innovation and all this sort of thing. And it was, it was a pretty well-crafted picture in my head. And quite frankly, and that was probably about 1980 or so. Right. And I tucked that picture away. Uh, never really even thought about it again. And then about six years or seven years into Menlo, uh, so this would have been, so that was 1980, and now we're at about 2008. Hmm. So we're almost years almost later. 30 years yeah. later, right? I walk into Menlo one day, and it hit me. And I looked, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the thing I had imagined 30 years ago. Yeah. I did it. Right, yeah. and it was almost like this little like jack in the box popped out in my head, yeah. you know, kind of wiggled back and <laughs> forth and said, "Congratulations, yeah. you you accomplished your yeah. dream." And it was mind blowing to me because it wasn't like I woke up every day and said, "How do I get closer right. to that?" It was almost like there was this little guy in my head just steering me to, towards the goal, and I didn't even realize it. But yes, so I had imagined this, and I can tell you, it is as joyful as I had imagined back when I was a student. Well, and that's funny because it sounds like it was a straight line, but we both know oh, that gosh, success no. is not a straight line. You know, the journey, and you think about the, the, the whole, all the different decisions you had to make over the careers, and we'll talk about those from turning down the first offer to be a VP. I mean, all sorts of different things, and, and how surreal. But I, I have to ask, when you first had that vision in your head when you were back in college, was it because you were taking a class and someone told you to, or did you just know, did you just have an idea that this is something – I really would love to create, and this is a place I'd love to create it. Yeah, you know, I think what I, I now, I think I understand myself better today mm -hmm. than I did back then. Sure. I think I was in pursuit of something, uh, and I'm not sure I quite knew what it was, but I think what, <laughs> this works this way a lot in my life. I may not know where I'm going. Right. Exactly. Right. I'm not even sure how I'll get there. Right. But what I do know about me is when I arrive, I will know it when I see it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think probably that little guy who's steering my, my head right. uh, is steering me away from certain things and towards others. And uh, in, the, uh, in the bumpy road that uh, you have, uh, there was a point where it got very um, scary for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be in the industry anymore. Uh, I was in what I call a personal trough of disillusionment where I started taking long drives to work. 
Yeah. Uh, I kept driving past my workplace, <laughs> right. and I was I was a leader. I was, uh, at a certain point I became a VP, and I just didn't want to be there anymore. What what? Let's talk about what led to that point because there is a story behind that in, yep. in your professional journey, and and I have to believe and imagine that when you first got into the professional career of getting paid to do what you love for a living, it was nothing but in, in joy. You know, yeah. you, just, you were the happiest person Absolutely. in the world, floating on cloud nine. How did you get in, and I've heard you say it before, how did you get from joy to fear? Yeah. You know, I, when I graduated from Michigan in 1982 with a master's degree, uh, I'm 11 years uh, in cause from that first program I wrote. Right. So I am uh, uh, qualified. Mm -hmm. I'm experienced. I had about three and a half years of professional programming at that point. I've now right. got two degrees from one of the most prestigious universities on the planet. And, uh, and I'm in an industry that's about to take off. Because in 1982, the IBM PC came out. So now there's going to be a computer on every desk. Right. And so I'm... I got the ticket, man. I'm right. going to the show, right? Yeah. And I thought, this is going to be the coolest profession ever. I love what I do. I'm gonna, it'll carry me and my family for a lifetime. And very quickly after graduating from Michigan, mm -hmm. I started to see the dark side, yeah. not just of our industry, but of industry in general, mm -hmm. where suddenly it was long nights, uh, time away from family, uh, blown deadlines, uh, crappy results delivered to customers, people pounding fists on tables in meetings, right. unhappy sponsors of projects, unhappy executives. And, uh, and it was seemingly, uh, at least in, in my profession, it was seemingly all our fault. We weren't listening right. We weren't hearing what they wanted. You know, they, you know, they, they, they asked us to build them X, we built them X, and now they tell us X isn't what they want. And, mm -hmm. and somehow that was our fault. And so I kept, you know, uh, you know, my optimistic nature was to keep fighting this, but at a certain point, I just felt defeated. Mm -hmm. And I was actively contemplating getting out. Wow. And uh, I, the, the, it's actually a true story. Uh, my wife laughs every time I say it. I was contemplating starting a canoe camp in the Boundary Waters of Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know this. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and my wife yeah. looks at me, she's like, did you really think we have three daughters? She did said, you, do you actually have conversations with her about it? Like, honey, no, I think this is really what I'm going to do. No, I was smarter than yeah, that, Ed. Yeah, two degrees from <laughs> Michigan. That's and, right. And, yeah, yeah, yep. uh, but uh, I will tell you, there's a lot of guys I've said this to, and they'll pull me aside later, and they're like, hey, how far did you get with the canoe camp? And you know, we could still do this. We could pull it off. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Menlo could run itself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what changed? How, what, what pulled you back into the industry? Mentally, I should yeah, say. Yeah, I, I think part of it is uh, there is uh, my, my co-founder, James, loves to call it my infernal optimist. Uh, I call it my eternal optimist. When I find myself in a room full of manure, which is where I was, mm -hmm. I know there's a pony in yep. there somewhere. <laughs> Uh, and you start digging. And I started digging. And, it, and so I decided to start reading books. Okay. Not books on technology, because quite frankly, technology is trivial compared to how to organize human teams. Mm -hmm. So the books I was drawn to, Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence, right. Peter Drucker's books on management, uh, Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Learning Organizations, mm -hmm. uh, where I learned about systems thinking. And all of these books were in some ways, pointing a way to a brighter future. They didn't necessarily tell me how to get there, but they at least planted a seed in my mind that something uh, different, maybe very different, was possible. And again, I didn't know how I was going to get there. I did know that I would know it when I saw it. Right, right. And you didn't necessarily know exactly what you were looking for, but you knew what you wanted that end result to be. Yep. And uh, in what I wanted, uh, and, and I, I didn't use this word back then, but what I wanted was joy. Mm -hmm. And joy for a software engineer, for a technical person, for any engineer is actually very easy to define. What we want to see as technical people is to see the work of our hearts, our hands, and our minds get out into the world mm -hmm. 
and delight the people it's intended to serve. Mm-hmm. What, a, what, what an engineer wants more than anything else is to have somebody stop them on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. somebody they don't know, who is somehow using that creation of their mind mm-hmm. and say, wait a minute, really, you, you did that? I love that thing. That, I use it every day. You made my life better because of what you did. Wow. That, that's what drives the heart of an engineer. Right. Right. And on that note, and I've read a couple of things that you've been a part of, what are, what are and there's probably hundreds of them, but what are a couple of the projects that you worked on uh, at Menlo that you hold near and dear to your heart? Yeah. One of our most famous, and it's a project we still work on to this day after 14 years, is uh, the Accury Flow Cytometer. It is a. Uh, it was originally intended to be a cancer research instrument, uh, mm-hmm. and AIDS and lymphoma and leukemia. So it allows a scientist who's trying to discover either cures or treatments for those diseases mm-hmm. to analyze blood samples, and uh, so it takes a 96 well plate, kind of like what you might see in a CSI episode or something okay. like that, and sip the blood cells out of each of the 96 well plates. And the scientists themselves are putting drug compounds in each of those wells to see if they can combat the growth of the cells or yeah. destroy them. Our team built the software that allows the scientists to analyze what happened. It's amazing. And so we worked for three and a half years on that project with our customer startup company here in Ann Arbor called Accury, uh, launched the product, and within three years, they had captured 30% of the worldwide market share in flow cytometers, even though we didn't know anything about flow cytometry, and quite frankly, neither did they. And there were two big players in the market uh, at the time who were astounded that this little startup company Mm -hmm. could so quickly revolutionized an industry. And it was really a, a personal flow cytometer uh, where the, um, uh, the world had been driven by the equivalent of mainframe flow cytometer. So this was a desktop flow cytometer with software on a PC next to it. And so suddenly now the whole world of flow cytometry had changed and the, the cancer research industry just kind of mind blown, right? They're like, now we don't have to spend a half a million dollars for one of these and put it in a special room with special staff like the old mainframe computers. Right. Now each researcher can have one on their desktop. Right. And uh, within months, we're getting people literally here in Ann Arbor because this yeah. is the kind of work that happens at a place like the University sure. of Michigan Med School sure. and that uh, saying, wait a minute, you guys did the software for the Accurate yeah. Flow Cytometer? I love that software. I use it every day. You made my life better because of that. And uh, within three years, we had so, uh, working with our customers, so captured that market that they got acquired by one of those big players. And uh, that big player, uh, Becton Dickinson, still uses us to this day for uh, advancing it. Now that product has moved from research to clinical. So now it's used to monitor the treatment of people who have those diseases. It's amazing. So let me ask you this then, you know, back to what we were just talking about with, with what you were after with the joy and the culture here, what made, what made you different than the other ones trying to do that in terms of a, a, this small startup was able to do this in such a quick turnaround time? Why were you, besides the obvious geniuses you bring on board, but why were you able to do that? What did you create environment-wise and team-wise um, to make that happen? Yeah, I think when I talk about this with the world and uh, uh, I, I talk about how I actually relate human organizations now to aircraft. I have a private pilot's license, and so I, I look at the four fundamental forces that allow a plane to fly. Mm-hmm. And you've got lift, you've got thrust, pulls mm-hmm. it forward, provided right. by the engine. You've got weight, it holds it down, and drag that slows it down. And uh, the simplest version I can tell you is that um, we as leaders need to focus our attention on how do we lift the human energy Mm -hmm. of our team? Mm -hmm. How do we diminish the weight of bureaucracy as much as possible? How do we increase and make clear the thrust of the purpose of our organization? Mm -hmm. And how do we minimize as much as possible the drag of fear on our organizations? And so... The thrust of purpose, I believe, is why we win here the way we do. And for us, when we talk about joy at Menlo, we define it very simply by um, posing two questions. Mm -hmm. 
who do you serve, and what would delight look like for them? Wow, that's powerful. And so that external focus, everyone here understands our heart is to delight the end users of the software we're creating. And, you know, I, uh, I can even go all the way back to the creation of the first aircraft and say, why did the Wright brothers win? A couple of guys in a bicycle shop down in Dayton, <laughs> Ohio. Uh, and Langley, Samuel Pierpont Langley, who was well-funded in Washington, had, I think, 50 PhDs on his team. And here's these two guys, these two bicycle, guy, bicycle shop guys in Dayton. Why did they win and Langley fail? Because interestingly enough, as soon as the Wright brothers won, Langley quit, mm. which is just mind-blowing to me, right. right? Right. And I think the fundamental difference was Langley was trying to build an airplane. Right. The Wright brothers wanted to fly. Mm. And for us here, we want to fly. That it's one of my favorite things that you know I've heard you say because you think about it, we get so caught up in we need to produce this, we need to meet you know to meet this metric, we need to do this. And the bottom line comes back to what will delight the end user. Yep. And, and I think humans, human teams, you know, because quite frankly, the the problems we're solving today in business or anywhere are so vast and so complex, we need to bind people together in effective mm -hmm. teams. It's no longer that the individual hero can accomplish anything. Right. So now we've got to figure out what are the team dynamics? And you know, and let's, you know, you're looking out at Menlo here. This mm -hmm. is a different kind of company. It's really cool. Right? Yeah. We yeah. have uh, uh, you know, filled with introverted engineers, just yeah. like you'd expect. And yet they're working in an open room, talking to one another all day long, uh, collaborating in pairs. And, and people are always astounded by that. Mm -hmm. And they're like, how do you get that to work? And right. I tell them, I say, look, they understand why we're here. They understand they have a chance to experience that kind of joy in their lives that I was seeking in my own. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, this is a very selfish invention on my part, this whole thing. <laughs> how so? This is the place I want to come to work right. every day. And, you know, I think it's that, that's a good kind of selfish, mm -hmm. right? It just yeah. happens to be about 50 other people want to join me in this journey yeah. uh, and allows us to do what we do. Well, and, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't describe what I'm looking at. So we're in this really cool conference room with an all-glass wall that I'm looking out. Uh, we have sliding barn doors, except these barn doors are actually glass, okay? And you're looking out at, it appears to be folding tables. Yes, they're just lightweight aluminum tables uh, made by Southern Aluminum. Uh, we like the, they're five foot by two and a half feet. Okay. Uh, which having a table that's uh, twice as long as wide allows us for a lot of different fun geometric combinations of tables. Uh, but the tables themselves are light enough so that anyone can move them. And this space changes in small ways every single day. The team is in charge of that. Uh, there is no facilities people. There's no space police here. Uh, if the team wants to change the space, they just change it. Yeah, or if the team has to change the space, a little bit like something you and I have in common that I have failed to mention, MASH. Uh, it reminds me, <laughs> the MASH 4077. When it was time yeah. to move, man, they could they yep. could move. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, yeah, I, I, I loved that show. Great show. Uh, it was well put together. Uh, what I appreciated too, and I think you see a lot of this here as well, um, uh, someone once uh, sort of uh, anointed us and said, you guys are whimsically irreverent here at Menlo. Uh, you'll see uh, later that we run our daily stand-up meeting with yep. a two-horned plastic Viking helmet <laughs> uh, called by a dartboard on the wall. Uh, we call ourselves Menlonians. Uh, we don't have, uh, we don't use electronics when we communicate with one another. We we use what we like to call high-speed voice technology. <laughs> um, we plan with paper, yeah. handwritten index cards. It's amazing. They're uh, all over the place here. And everything we do is different. Yeah. Uh, we we had to reinvent the standard way of doing what our industry does because. We weren't flying. Yeah. I mean, as simply put, our planes never got off the ground. Right. If you have too much weight, not enough lift, and let's just equate it to an engagement and disengagement statistics. Mm -hmm. if, if we accept the numbers that Gallup has been putting out for decades that only 30% of your team is engaged and 70% is disengaged, what does that actually mean if you think about it in my aircraft metaphor? That means you're only producing 30% lift and you're 70% weight. You know what? 
your plane will never yeah. get off the ground. Yeah. yeah. It will just never get off the That's ground. That's an amazing analogy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and before we get to your new books, I want to talk all about your, your, your new book, Chief Joy Officer. Uh, Joy Inc. I loved it. There's Thank so you. much great stuff in it. And you, you, I loved writing it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, how, how about that? And that was, and you had told me that was a bucket list in and of itself to write it, let alone live it. And there's a chapter in there you have um, growing leaders, not bosses. And it's alive out there. I mean, it, it's, it's exact. Can you tell us, tell our listener a little bit about that, the fact that um, there's no bosses out there? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people are astounded by that. Uh, that we don't have a hierarchy. We mm -hmm. don't have an org chart. We don't have VPs or directors or managers. Uh, we have a team. Right. And uh, funny, going back to my baseball metaphor uh, or, or my baseball love uh, back in the old days, um, you think about a baseball team, right? Uh, are there leaders? Of course there are. There's leaders on the field. There's leaders in the dugout. Sure, there's a manager, but you know what? Manager's not playing the game. Right? right, and once those players go out on the field, it's them, and the catcher doesn't report to the pitcher, mm -hmm. uh, the pitcher doesn't report to the first baseman. Right, uh, and what's neat I love about baseball too is when somebody hits a ball down towards first base, pulls the first baseman off the bag, the pitcher becomes the first baseman, and because hmm. the catcher knows that that's a dangerous play. What's he doing? Run. With all that Running. equipment yep. and probably bad knees to boot, yeah. he's trying to run as fast as that batter is running down to yeah. the bag just in case they make a mistake. And so now you've got this picture of a team that says, hey, this isn't about individual heroes. We're going to succeed if we succeed as a team. And it doesn't matter if, you know, if at the end of the game everybody says, well, you know, you got an error and I didn't. Right, which is how we run most of our corporations. Right, right, right. Yep, absolutely. In, in the Point annual fingers. performance yep. review is: I only succeed if I if I run faster than you. So I, my job is to outperform everybody else in the team. How is that a right, team? Right, right, right. God, I love that analogy. As you can see, I'm taking notes here. <laughs> I mean, that, that's an amazing analogy, and, and and that's that's just that you know in our and we've talked a little bit. Our brand is the athletics of business, and that's. The mindset that the skills, traits, and behaviors deployed by elite athletes and high-performing teams are key to your success. And I've always believed if you can tell when you are successful as a coach, if you walk into practice 10 minutes late, say you had an interview, say you had a phone call, say something to have or you had a meeting with academics, and you walk in 10 minutes late and your team is running practice. Yeah. They're not playing grab ass. Uh -huh. They're not sitting there talking, yep. throwing up half court shots. Because I've always believed that players coach teams are much harder to beat, much more efficient, much more powerful than coached coach teams, coach coach teams, if you yep. will. Um, yeah, so, so let me torture that one yeah. just a little bit yeah. because uh, I had a moment like that in my early career where uh, I was the boss, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I was kind of climbing the corporate ladder. I was probably, I'll call it a director at this point. And I had uh, what every boss had. I had the dreaded Monday morning status meeting, yep. right? It's at 9 o'clock, and we're all going to get together in a conference room, and everybody's going to report out status. And quite frankly, if I recall those meetings, uh, uh, I think, you know what everybody was trying to do? They were trying to figure out who the longest pole in the tent was. Who's more behind than me? Right. And if somebody else is more behind than me, thank goodness, because they're going to get all the attention. Yeah. So there's no teamwork here. There's just simply jockeying for, right. oh, they're in more trouble than I am, so I'm safe for this week, right? right. So uh, one morning, one Monday morning, uh, there was something going on at home, and I had to deal with it, and I couldn't even call in for whatever reason it took me away, and I didn't show up, and the team didn't know I wasn't coming. So they formed in the conference room at 9 o'clock like they normally did, and, uh, and I showed up probably an hour or so later, and I grabbed one of my senior team members, and I said, hey, did you guys have the Monday morning status meeting? And they're like, yeah, we got together. I said, well, what'd you talk about? And they said, uh, the weekend, uh, <laughs> vacation plans. Uh, yeah. You know, we waited about 20 minutes, and then we realized you weren't showing up. We just went back to work. Right. Kill those meetings. Yeah. If your team is only doing them because the boss is there, because right. the boss told you to do them, kill those meetings. What the team was clearly communicating to me was those meetings had absolutely no value for them. 
Mm-hmm. It didn't help them do their work. It was simply them uh, placating the boss. Right. And so I have learned over time, find those things, kill them. Yeah. And, and just going through the motions for the sake of going through the motions, yep. and you, you do see that. And yet there could be powerful use for, for things like that. But Absolutely. how gratifying would it have been, though, if you asked them, okay, so what, what, what happened in meeting? And it was just boom, 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 yep. efficient. We ran it without you. We know how to do this. We know, you know, and, and I will say that, uh, you know, that's the effect we get here. Yeah. This Nobody's going to be lining up outside this glass door waiting for me while we're talking here. Uh, I travel a lot now. I speak all over the world about joining. Right. In the context of business, this place runs just fine without me. So I don't want to just tease our listener. We talk about what you do. Let's talk about how. So how do you grow leaders besides just a setup here? How do you encourage that? On, you know, daily. Yeah. The um, uh, first of all, um, what we want to make sure is uh, we want to start with that purpose. We want to clearly understand and define for everybody who's here. What our purpose is. Now, we have a few unnatural advantages now to do that for the people who are joining. There's a new guy here, Steve. Yes. He's here. First day today. First right? day today. Yeah. Uh, he uh, he joined us from another firm. He's actually a pretty seasoned uh, programmer. Mm-hmm. He's been in the industry for a few decades now. So uh, it, we're really excited to have him here. You have a new dog here today, too, don't we you? We do. We have Egon here <laughs> Egon's today. Egon's a cool yeah. dog. Yeah. yeah. She's great. I was able, as um, you put it, I was able to see Sunrise at Menlo this yeah, morning. Yeah, that's the, right. The, yeah. the introduction of the new dog. So I digress. So back to growing leaders. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and it's funny because uh, uh, Steve, like most programmers in anywhere, but certainly here in Southeast Michigan, had another offer on the table. And so when we were interviewing him, he was juggling. And in the midst of that conversation with him, uh, we were we were trying to say, hey, we really want you here. He goes, oh, I want to be here. If you want me here, I'm going to be here. Mm-hmm. I'll just tell the other people. And it, and what did he say? He said, I read your book, Rich. And, wow. And he spent a day here interviewing because that's part of our interview process. And right. Can, if you want, we can talk about our interview process. It's weird and different. <laughs> uh, but he spent a day here uh, yeah. as a second interview. We paid him. He did work. And the first thing he said, and this is important, he said, yep, I read the book, and I see consistency with what I read. The authenticity of it. Yep. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, one of the values of leaders is authenticity. Yes. Uh, you know, I think authenticity is probably one of a human being's most finely tuned sense of smells. You can, you can smell it when it's there, and you can smell it when it's not. Yes. And yeah. for whatever reason of evolution, I fundamentally believe that we have learned do not follow inauthentic leaders because if you do, something really bad's going to happen to you, not to them. Right, right. And isn't that the truth? And, and I like to break authenticity down. This could be an hour conversation between us. I I could break. I like to break authenticity down uh, to honesty plus integrity, and I got that from James Curve, uh, phenomenal book, Legacy, written about the, the All Blacks, uh, the, the um, New Zealand Rugby Club. But in, in that, to say the sense of smell is, is a great way to put it, and it's very intuitive. You can tell when someone's inauthentic. But here's the thing: what about yourself? You know, be true to yourself too. And if you're not being honest with yourself, and, and to have the ability to develop this culture and put it on them. So one of my big things is recruiting winners. Okay, you, you get winners, but also recruiting winners to a culture that, that attracts them and you're talking into that right now. How much do you leverage the culture you've built? And this is a foolish question because even the listener already knows the answer, but I wanna hear it from you. How much do you leverage that culture in the recruiting process of folks like Steve? You know, leverage is, is uh, an interesting word. Um, Capitalize on it? Well, no. I, I, what I want to capture for you is that it isn't – it's it's powerful, mm-hmm. right? Right. But it's not powerful because we're putting it out there. It's powerful because it exists, that it's palpable. You felt it when you walked in oh, the yeah. room this morning. And right? there's, there's when I was here, there's only three or four people here. Right. But you feel it right when you yeah, walk in. Yeah, and, and I often talk about the, the, that palpable human energy. The minute you walk in, and let's 
let's paint the picture for your listeners. Yeah. This is the windowless basement of a seven-story <laughs> parking structure. I okay? didn't get to that part of my description. You're correct. <laughs> that, which is a big part to the description. Right. Yeah. Now, but you walked in, yeah. and I bet there was, like, most people who walked in the door for the first time, there was kind of a wow moment. Yeah. Right? And, you know, so we can pull that off in a pretty, you know, bleak space, right? We get wow. Yeah. And so that power is part of how we uh, attract talent. In fact, I will tell you that uh, the greatest source of talent for us, people regularly send us their children. And and a lot of people laugh when I say that. And they're like, no, no, I'm serious. Parents come here Mm -hmm. with their corporations because we get about three to 4,000 visitors a year come from all over the planet to see us. And at the end, I'll, you know, people, oh, where do you find your people? You know, there's a talent shortage. And eh, not for us. We don't have a problem with that. Right. And, and they're like, well, where do you find them? I said, well, people regularly send us their children. And I said, <laughs> and they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, uh, parent comes here. Yep. That's and you're like, my kid would love to work in a place like this. And I often liken it to a s- desperate scene on the deck of the Titanic where the parent is handing us their child saying, I've lived a good life, but yeah. I want a better life yeah. for my child. Let yeah. them work here, yep. you know. Yep. I, it's too late for me, but save yeah. my child. And, uh, you know, for us, I think that's the power of the culture. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that uh, everybody here, we do tours. Right. Uh, we do hundreds of tours a year for thousands of people. The tour guides are the team members. Yeah, and then that was when you were telling me that this morning, I asked you, is that a distraction? Yeah. And you very simply said it's just the, the norm. It's, it's just the norm. Uh, in yeah. fact, I think if the tours somehow stopped for some weird reason, the, yeah. team, the team would all be like, hey, where's <laughs> the, the uncomfortable tours? silence? Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, why are we, are yeah. we not interesting anymore? Yeah. But what's fun about all of that, and again, back to culture and purpose, and it's, it, it's another element of how do we grow leaders, not bosses, storytelling. Right. Storytelling is so critical. My playful title here on my business card is chief storyteller. Right. You're probably getting a little bit of a sense of this just in this discussion. Yeah. And, but what I realized one time on a tour that I was leading and Ian here was the one who uh, said it to me. Um, I was getting a review of, uh, uh, you know, they were giving me feedback. Uh, yeah. The team was, and Ian was in it. He says, you know, Rich, every time you give a tour and you're near me and you're telling your stories, um, I stop and listen. Right. And he says, I don't know how you do it. He says, you tell the same stories over and over again, but it's like you're telling them for the first, first time. time. Yeah. And I just can't help but stop whatever I'm doing mm-hmm. and listen to the stories. I love hearing them every time. And it dawned on me in that little interaction with Ian, I thought the stories were for our visitors. No, the no. stories are for the team. Right. This yeah. is how we yeah. build the culture is, you know, because what do we do? We, we curate the stories as a team, as right. a community. Right. I don't care what you are. You're going to hang on to the stories that are the most important, the ones that most evoke the values you're pursuing or maybe evoke the negative side of the values and say, let's not do that anymore. Right. So the storytelling component of our culture is very, very powerful. And I think that some of the power of that and a good deal of power comes from that. We all need to be reminded every single day of what drives us. And, Absolutely. and you know, we talk about joy and we're going to get into that right now with the chief joy officer, but we talk about we talk about joy. But and you, you've said this to me. Um, I've read quotes by you. I've seen interviews. It's still a grind. You know, there's still a reality to a situation of adversity and failure and, and distractions and, and things that are this out of your control. This is a real business mm-hmm. in a real economy with real people. And you still have an edge. You still have a swagger about you. You still compete to, to do what it is you set out to do. And you also mentioned there's a difference between joy and happiness. Big difference. Yeah, big, let's, big let's difference. talk about that. You know, Look, are we happy here? I think the dog has the Viking helmet because the yeah, dog's that's right. <laughs> so yeah. right now, everybody just the alarm clock on a dartboard went up, and everybody just got up from their desk and walked to. Now we can't see them. They're at the other end of the uh, basement of the parking garage, and yep. they hold a Viking helmet and they they talk about what's going on and what yep. their wins are, what's happened, and the new dog just spoke. So we can't see it, but I'm guessing the new dog has the Viking helmet. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Back to joy versus happiness. Yeah, so uh, it was fun uh, it, when writing Joy Inc. Uh, one of the one of the most difficult parts of writing a book is coming up with the subtitle 
the title can be pretty powerful. Uh, Joy Inc. I thought was a powerful title. Chief Joy Officer I love. But it's that subtitle that can really communicate things. And I was uh, I entered into an argument with my editor at Penguin because the first proposed subtitle was take a peek inside the world's happiest workplace. Mm. And I said, oh, no. I said, that's not joy. Right. Joy and happiness are two very different things. And she said, what do you mean? And I wrote her an email describing the difference between joy and happiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fun thing about the email was just, oh, this is really good. This has to be in the book. And so there's a whole section in the early part of the book where it talks about joy and happiness are not the same thing. And it was a direct result of the email I sent back to my editor. Mm-hmm. Happiness is important. Mm-hmm. We want happiness here as much as we can get it. Right. But for us, this is hard work. Mm-hmm. This is work that takes years in the making. Right. This is work where we're going to get frustrated. We're going to have setbacks. We're going to run into problems we didn't expect. We're going to we're going to blow an estimate or something. We're going to have a difficult interaction with the client. Again, real world stuff we do here every single day. And software often right. holds the lives of people in its hands. And we have worked on things software that literally loads, holds a lot yes. of people in its hands, it would be unnatural to be happy every minute of every day. Right. That would require medication. <laughs> <laughs> Joy is a much longer arc. Joy is that the cathedral builder's picture, mm-hmm. right? The, the three guys laying bricks, right? Mm-hmm. And he asks the first guy, what are you doing? He says, I'm laying bricks. The next guy, I'm building a wall. And the third guy finally says, I'm building a cathedral. Right. And what I love about that story, which is a timeless story, is the guy who said I'm building a cathedral in those days knew he'd never see it. Yeah. He'd never see it completed. Wow. It was going to outlive him. Yeah. Right? Or he the, wasn't going to live. The project would he, outlive. Yeah. Yes. He yes. wasn't going to see it completed. He would never worship there. He wouldn't baptize his kids in that cathedral. Yeah. So he was doing this uh long-term view that said, this is a worthy pursuit, even if I never get to enjoy the fruits of my labor. Right. Descendants of mine will. And so I think that's the thing as leaders we need to keep reminding our team of, mm-hmm. is that, uh, look, we're going to struggle. We're going to have human interaction issues. We're going to have crucial conversations, as Vital, Mar- Vital Smarts likes to say. Mm-hmm. But if we remind ourselves, why are we here? What's our purpose? What are we pursuing? Uh, it's amazing how much that takes off the table, all the creature comfort things, mm-hmm. right? You know, nobody's worried about well, how comfortable is my chair and right. uh, do I have a big office and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Right, right. That's, that's I mean, and that's something people mistake joy and happiness, you know, all the time. And, and you can't. I mean, every single day is going to be, especially when you create what you do, and you just mentioned three or four things that can go wrong every single day, you're, you're going to have losses, Yep. You know, and you're going to have losses, and 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 you're going to have errors. You know, we can keep torturing the baseball metaphor, right? You, you know, and, <laughs> by the way, that is one of my favorite. I mean, that that is that was outstanding. Um, I'm going to go. I'm going to go somewhere that I didn't plan on going today in this uh, in our time together. But you've said we talked earlier about retention, and you don't have a lot of turnover because of the culture. We have normal turnover. Okay. We really do. Okay. Uh, you know, there's there's this isn't. Uh, uh, magical nirvana where people come and they stay forever. Some we ask to leave. Right. Right. They don't right. work out. They're not, they never got it enough to stay. Uh, and I, I mentioned Ian, he's one of my favorite stories. Ian has left three times mm-hmm. and we've invited him in four times. So he's still here. Right. Uh, but there were gaps. Yeah. And the first time he left, quite frankly, we were probably two weeks away from firing him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, he was on the border of insubordination. And uh, uh, I can tell you this story because I got approval to tell this story in the book. <laughs> so you'll read about it and you know, you'll read about Ian. He's like, oh, yeah, Rich, you can tell the story. He says, you were actually too kind in the way you wrote it in the book. You guys yeah. should have fired me. And Ian didn't believe. He didn't believe in what, why we did things the way we did them. He thought we were over the top and all of our focus on quality and attention on the user and how we craft the team and all that sort of thing. So he left. And about two years later, he calls us up and he says, hey, I'd like to come back. And we were, we were dubious, mm-hmm. to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were cautious. And finally the team's like, yeah, let's give him a chance. 
and uh, but we'll run them through our same three week trial. We run all of our new candidates mm-hmm. through, and he came in shining star. Yeah, and within months he was one of our most revered leaders. Mm-hmm. And I pulled him aside and I said, Ian, what on earth happened while you were gone? Because you knew we were going to fire you. He goes, Oh yeah, I can't believe you hung on to me as long as you did. And uh, he said, you know, Rich, I got out in the real world, the world that you and James, my co-founder, described yeah. to our tour guests about what can go wrong in software and how bad the projects can go. And he says, mm-hmm. quite frankly, it's the only place I ever worked. I didn't believe you. I didn't believe it could be that bad. But then I got out in the real world and found out yeah. it was. And then as a leader, I tried to fix it. And you know what I was doing? I kept pulling in little pieces of Menlo every day. Mm-hmm. He says, do you know how hard it is to build Menlo? <laughs> Sort of. Yeah, he had maybe yeah. just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, then one day I woke up and he says, why the heck am I trying to rebuild Menlo when I could go work at Menlo? Right. So then he comes back. And of course, now he has this broader understanding. Mm-hmm. So we have this policy, uh, I guess uh, that we don't really have policies, but we have this pattern of behavior uh, that says um, you can come back. If you leave, we're a birdcage without bars. We don't encourage people to go, but... If you decide you want to try and come back, and not everybody gets to come back, right. uh, you know we're a real team as well, but we'll give you a chance. Right. And uh, one of our core values, uh, leadership values and team values, is take a chance on people. Mm-hmm. And so we did. Ian left again a couple of years later to join a startup with another Menlonian. We actually encouraged that activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that took its natural course after a couple of years. He came back again. And the next time he left, he went to one of the big automotive companies here in southeast Michigan for a 50% pay increase. Wow. Five zero. Wow. We couldn't say no to him. Mm-hmm. He had, he's got a son. He's got a family. He's got bills to pay. And we're like, go. He lasted about a year. Hmm. And he, you know, it was kind of like, they're not human here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he came back and we couldn't yeah. match the 50% he got, but he, he got a pop when he came back. Mm-hmm. Every time he left, he came back a better Ian, wiser, more experienced, right. uh, broader view of the world, uh, mm-hmm. able to bring those lessons back. It's probably one of our Which best is pretty dynamic that you're absolutely. able to do that. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's all part of what goes into being a chief joy officer. And let's talk about this book and let's talk about what uh, inspired you to write this book, inspired the title, Chief Joy Officer, How Great Leaders Elevate Human Energy and Eliminate Fear. Yeah. Um, my my publisher came back. I, so as we talked about earlier, uh, there were probably in, in my work life, if you will, I had two big bucket list items from kid on. Uh, one was to be an entrepreneur and start a business. Mm-hmm. Boom, check, did that. Uh, second was to write a book. I, I, I always assumed everybody wants to write a book. I found out that's not true. Uh, my wife looks at me, she says, I'd never want to write a book. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, but I wanted to write a book. So I got it with Joy Inc. And so, boom, two bucket, bucket list items off the list. And the book took off. Right. It's doing incredibly well. Penguin was thrilled with me, uh, uh, both the content as well as the performance of the book in the marketplace. And so they said, we want you to do another one. And we started speculating with each other. And they said, you know, you should talk about this crazy leadership system you have there where you don't have any bosses. You Mm -hmm. just have leaders. Let's take that chapter of growing leaders, not bosses, and talk about how do you do that. And so Chief Joy Officer is about the leadership elements that are beyond just the normal culture here. if you if you will, if if you think about a family, uh, you probably have values within your family, but the parents themselves have to subscribe. They're signing up for a different set of values, right? Right. Right. Um, and so, same here. Uh, they're additive to the normal values. And so, for us, uh, what we talk about, uh, what I talk about in the book is, what are the values we expect of leaders here? And then what's the systems and practices we put in place to grow a culture mm-hmm. of joyful leaders? Wow. Wow. And, and did that, the whole process of writing the book, was it, did it just start, the ideas just start flowing out of you and the stories just start flowing out of you because of all the experiences you've had, you have had doing that? Yeah, I, I think the storytelling component of Menlo mm-hmm. helps a lot with that. Uh, and, uh, quite frankly, uh, writing the first book was an incredible learning lesson for me. So I think I kept a lot of the voice of the first book into the second. It took me a while to develop 
you know, quite frankly, I, I, what I had to do in Joy Inc. was get to my authentic voice. Right. I think I probably started writing like I think authors should write, and then I realized yeah, I got to run into that. Yeah. I got to run into like what is in my heart yeah. and, and spill that out on the pages, and and I felt very successful at doing that. You know that 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 begs me to ask: Did you? Remind yourself of a few things you may have gotten away from when you were writing the book and you're trying to get back to your voice and you're like, man, I forgot we used to do it that way. That was really good. Not so much that I forgot we used to do it that way, but I will tell you, it deepened my love for what we created yeah. here. Uh, mm -hmm. it, was, it, it was funny to see how the writing um, confirmed those little kid dreams, mm -hmm. uh, the dreams I had as a student in Michigan about what I wanted to create and what we had actually created. I, I think I actually developed a more profound respect for Menlo after having written the book. And quite frankly, I was nervous about writing this book because uh, what I didn't want to do is come out to the world and say, we've solved the leadership issue. We've got the one true way. Right. Uh, this is a real business. We've got real challenges mm -hmm. here. Uh, so, uh, Basically, both books are, look, we're not, we're not here to tell you you should make yourselves look like us. Yeah. This is a real business. Take a peek inside. Take away any lessons you want that could work for you. Mm -hmm. We're very clear on that on tours. We tell people, this is simply an example. Come look at it. Mm -hmm. Don't, there's nothing in our heart that says you should make your business look like ours. Mm -hmm. Just come here, you know, because I think a lot of times people go to conferences, they read books, they talk to colleagues, maybe they have little, uh, you know, sessions somewhere. But every once in a while, somebody says, you know what, an example right about now would be really helpful. And I think that's what we are for the world. The thousands of people who come here every year, the tens of thousands of people who read the book, we're a living, breathing example of an actual organization. Well, and, and like you said, the folks that give the tours are the the ones that are here, and they're they just are the Menlonians. Yeah. Yep. I mean, thousands, three thousand times a year, you're reaffirming yep. what you do in the way in the That's way you right. do it. And, you know, and one of the things um, I want to ask you: creativity. A lot of people think to be creative, you have to be locked in a room. It has to be quiet. You have you can't be bothered. Don't you know? And I go down that rabbit hole with, with my kids sometimes when I'm trying to do something so simply like so simple as write a blog or, or, or an article or something and it's like don't knock on the door daddy's daddy's, daddy's yeah. but then i'll find like i'll go let's say i'll go to starbucks grab a cup of coffee uh -huh. all of a sudden your your creativity is on fire yeah. and yep. you don't even realize that things are how do you do that there how do you tap into the creative juices of these folks in this dynamic and it's not really loud it's not obnoxiously loud but right. there's a buzz there's no, an it's, energy it's, here it's coffee shop level yeah, noise. yeah yeah so how do you Definitely do that is. uh so I think the key to unlocking the most human part of our teams has to do with eliminating fear. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think one of my key roles as a leader here at Menlo and the encouragement I have to give other leaders is to pump fear out of the room. Mm -hmm. Because um, fear produces a physiological effect. Mm -hmm. Adrenaline and cortisol in small amounts dropped into the bloodstream, channels blood away from the most human part of our brain, mm -hmm. turns us into reptiles. Mm -hmm. All right, now we're in fight or flight mode. Yep. Uh, and the part of our brain that gets shut down is the biggest oxygen consumer in our body, the prefrontal cortex. And by shutting that down, what we're losing mm -hmm. is creativity, energy, imagination, mm -hmm. invention, and innovation, right? Those are what everybody on the planet wants these days, right? There isn't right. a business on the planet. Sears could use a little bit of this, right? <laughs> right? Uh, you you know, uh, Borders yeah. Books, who was headquartered in this exact space when they first started franchising. Borders Did is, not know that. Yeah, Borders wow. was Ann Arbor Company. Tom and Lou yeah. Borders started in a little storefront just a oh, block from but here. not this exact space. No, this exact space was right the headquarters, wow. world headquarters for Borders Books. Wow. Before they moved out to a couple of miles from here, Varsity Drive, this was their headquarters, right? Wow. And so, and, and you know, Borders had, Amazon put out the first website in 1994 uh, to sell books. Right. Borders had started in 1972. So they're 22 years old. Amazon comes out with the first website, mm -hmm. 
And Borders goes out of business in 2011. Borders had 17 years to figure out a response to Amazon, <laughs> and they never did. Wow. And I had a deep enough peak inside of that organization because they had come to us uh, when they decided to go back to their own website and pull it back from Amazon. And, um, and my wife said, how'd the class go with Borders? And I said, they're doomed. Uh, she says, what do you mean? I said, they will be out of business in five yeah. years. And what made you say that? There was so much fear in their eyes that it was clear. I, there was just, you could see the glazed look. They, they were just so afraid. And I said, they can't hear anything I'm saying mm -hmm. and they will, they will die. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, when I looked at the chapter eight filing, when they sold the last bookshelf to the last, uh, you know, um, uh, re, um, uh, you know, auctioneer, mm -hmm. um, there was a date of death for Borders Corporation. And there was a date of that class when I predicted five years. I was too optimistic. They died four years, nine months later. Wow. When I made the prediction, they had 1,100 stores and 20,000 employees. Mm -hmm. And I could see they're doomed. Man. And uh, it's just so clear the negative impact that fear has on organizations, especially now. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is, uh, you know, maybe it could work in the old days. You know, uh, I, I was taught in my earliest managerial career, to manage mm -hmm. with motivate, I motivate people with fear. Right. You know, I'd say, I, I, I was taught to, hey, Ed, how's it going? Yeah. What you working on? Mm -hmm. uh, hey, Ed, are you coming in this weekend? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, you know I do this at conferences and I, I look at people and I'm like, is your <laughs> blood pressure rising? Right. Because yeah. I'm really good at yeah. this. I was actually taught, uh, walk up to, uh, if you see two people talking in a corridor, you know, in a hallway, uh. Just walk up and yeah. stand there. He says they'll get back to work. Now, I've institutionalized two people talking here. Yeah. So it's a hilarious yeah. how far I've come yeah. from those days. Yeah, that is something. Else. So, you know, and, and we all know when you read a book, there's a way to get something out of it. And, and, and certain authors are certain ways to get, you know, out of their books. What is the best way if I sit down and I, and I, and our, our listener says, I just want to squeeze that sponge dry, you know, I want to get the most out of this uh, in this book, out of Chief Joy Officer as I possibly can. What's the best way for someone to go about reading the book? Yeah, I think there's. You might imagine there's some stories mm -hmm. in this book, um, and one of my favorites is uh, a story about Mass Mutual Corporation, and they are a 169 year old life insurance company. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 30 billion in annual revenues, pay out $3 billion a year in, in life insurance claims. This is a big deal, old time, stodgy organization out on the East Coast. And they had invited me in to speak to their leadership team. Uh, and I delivered a message at the end of my talk that I've delivered all over the world. And I'm pretty sure it's had impact, but I had no idea how much until I saw what happened inside of Mass Mutual. And the message was simple, and it's message of this book. Become action-oriented. When you have an idea, act on it. Run the experiment. Hmm. Okay? Hmm. And that's what I told him. And I tell this great story about a famous experiment here at Menlo about inviting newborn babies into the workplace. We've got one here today. Mm -hmm. Little Josiah's here somewhere. Right, right over uh, there. Yep, yeah. and um, uh, so the, Josiah's Menlo baby number 22 in the last <laughs> 11 years, so we're counting. Uh, it's a prolific crowd here. We're, we're, so if you, wanna have a, if you wanna work at a really cool place and have babies, come to Menlo. That's right, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and you know, so we'll ignore that part of the, the yeah. story. The, the more important part is I said, look, Try stuff. Just run the experiment. Stop forming committees and writing policies and having meetings. Go try stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea how much of an impact this was going to have. They invited me back six months later. They said, Rich, you got to see what happened. I said, okay, well, what? And they said, oh, no, you got to come. So they brought me back in. They, they treated me like royalty, which was weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm walking into these rooms, and there's copies of Joy Inc. everywhere. And they were like, oh, my gosh, Rich is here. And I'm like, that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, and then finally, I get together with Amy Ferraro, who's the um, uh, VP of claims. She says, Rich, I'm going to show you where we do claims. And she said, when we walk into the room, which was probably about a 100,000 square foot facility mm -hmm. of people in halfway cubicles, as yeah. far as the eye could see, yeah. she said, you're going to see helium balloons taped to desks. 
I said, oh, cool. What's with the balloons? You know, I'm thinking celebration, party, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. She goes, no, everyone who has a balloon taped to their desk is running an experiment. And the balloon is declaring that, and the, it's an invitation. Come ask me about the experiment I'm running. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. I can't wait to see. And we walk in, and, Ed, there are balloons as far as I can see. Wow. And I'm thinking, this has only been six months. Yeah. And so I walk up to Erica and I said, Erica, tell me about your experiment. She says, well, says, um, I thought we were taking too long to pay out claims. She said, simple claims. You know, there's, there's different kind of claims. And, you know, if there's a single beneficiary, clearly paid up policy, you know, easily identifiable beneficiary, we should be able to pay those out faster. She says, typically it takes us about four weeks to pay out a claim, but I thought we could do better. I said, awesome. What's your fastest claim so far? She said, 13 minutes. Like, wow, yeah. mind blown, right? And I'm like, wow, congratulations. And she, uh, it was really cool. That is, yeah. next Because she said, oh, no, 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 Rich, this wasn't me. And she points her hands to all the people around her and says, we couldn't have done this without the team. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And so, awesome. So then I run over to Susan. I'm like, Susan, tell me about your experiment. She says, well, we got this quality process to, when we're paying out claims. And we do step A, step B, step C. And she said, I realize if we make a mistake at step C, we wouldn't have had to have done step B, which is kind of a complicated, long process. So she says, I just rearranged the steps. So now we do A, C, then B, because B is the most expensive part. And it sounds pretty simple, right? But she's beaming with energy about this. Yeah. I said, Susan, how long have you worked here? She says, 19 years. And I said, have you always been like that? She goes, oh, no. She says, I used to hate my job. I hated coming to work. I said, what's different now? She says, well, now, you know, I said, what's different? And she said, well, in the old days, if I had an idea like this, it'd have to go up five levels, mm -hmm. over, down five levels. Every idea died before it ever got back right. to me. Right. So after a while, you just stopped coming up with ideas. Yeah. And she says, now we can run the experiment. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Think about that. And then the energy that created the idea was probably gone by the time it got up and down the food chain and back to you. It probably either A, never came back, or by the yeah. time it came back, yeah. it was so twisted around through committees, policies, and meetings that right. it didn't look anything like the original idea. So you know what? People just stopped coming up with ideas. Well, and think about how many lost learning opportunities they are when you, by your leadership style, your people are encouraged to stop coming up with ideas. Maybe not intentionally, but, you know, and so now they run all these experiments. And here's a woman yeah. who told me, a kind of a perfect stranger, right? She knew who I was. I used to hate my job, yeah. and now I love my job. Mm -hmm. She said, I can't wait to get to work. Mm -hmm. We flipped at least once mm -hmm. the disengagement statistic to an engagement statistic, and that plane can get off the ground. Wow. Wow. Think about that. That's, that's powerful. That that has to put a big smile on your face oh at the gosh. end of the day. It was like mind-blowing for me to think that a simple exhortation of run the experiment could mm -hmm. have that much of an effect. And, and here's my big point when I tell this story to the world, and your listeners need to hear this. Because a lot of people come here to Menlo, and they're like, oh, this is so cool. Mm -hmm. But it could never work for us because, because I'm we're too fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. We're too big. We're too governmental. We're too regulated. We're too, and I'm like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. If 169-year-old Mass Mutual Corporation can make this much change in six months, you can too. I'm not letting you off the hook. Go run the damn experiment. Because every excuse possible is inside of Mass Mutual. Absolutely. Including comfort zone, size. You bet. You Longevity. Know, Longevity. I'm here yep. to get to yeah. retirement. Uh, you know, I, I do what the boss tells me to do and all that kind of stuff. So, Well, if someone is interested in being one of the 3,000 organizations or groups of folks that come here every year, how can they find out more about coming here and getting a tour of Menlo Innovations? How do they go about doing that? Yep. Uh, easiest thing to do, write, a, uh, write an email to experience at menloinnovations.com. Okay. Uh, you can get to that by going to our website, and it'll say, uh, you can say experience Menlo by visiting. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, and for people who can't come, they've got the books. Right, right. And the website is? Menloinnovations.com, yep. M-E-N-L-O, yep. like Menlo Park, New Jersey. Absolutely. And the new book um, can be found? Yep. Uh, wherever books are sold, both uh, the print and the audio version will come out on the same day, December 4th. Uh, I'm really happy to say I got to read the book this time, which is awesome. That is so cool. Uh, and the forward is by 
an author who inspired me in my earliest days, Tom Peters, who wrote In Search of Excellence. That's really, that book is where my journey started. So I'm so... How fulfilling was that? Oh my him? gosh, yeah. I'm so geeked about that. Now, yeah. Tom's a funny guy. You know, he's, he's got strong opinions about stuff. And one time he... Uh, he, he wrote me a note, and he says, Rich, I, I love everything you're doing. Don't screw it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a parent would say. That's something yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, he says, I talk about joy wherever I go, and I talk about you. So the fact that he, A, wrote the foreword yeah. is awesome for me. That's so And, neat. B, he actually read the foreword for the audio version, which is just, I haven't even heard that yet. And yeah. That's just mind-blowing uh, for me. That is great. Well, I want to thank you again for having me in and, and, and showing me around and, and talking to me about uh, your culture, what you have done. Uh, I've learned a great deal today. Um, if you want to learn more about what uh, we do at the Molitor Group, you go to the themolitorgroup.com. Um, obviously, the Athletics of Business podcast uh, is on iTunes. It's on Stitcher. Go ahead and download it. Write us a review, please. Um positive, negative, um, indifferent. I don't care. Feedback is, is awesome and is much needed. Um, and also our website for the podcast, theathleticsofbusiness.com. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at the Molitor Group. We do have a uh, the Molitor Group Facebook page as well as an athletics and business community, which you can request to join. And really, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, and you go to my personal LinkedIn page, which is at Molitor, um, and I just think that's an incredible platform. So, Rich, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad you were able to come here and do this in person. Thank you for listening to The Athletics of Business. Be sure to give us a rating and review so we know how we're doing. For more information about the show, visit theathleticsofbusiness.com. Now, get out there, think, act, and execute at the highest level to unleash your greatness. 